Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Please turn to John's Gospel, chapter 1, and you should find a Bible near you. There's Bibles on the windowsills or the seat in front of you. John's Gospel, chapter 1. Sinclair Ferguson is going to be preaching for us this evening in just a moment, and I'm going to read John, chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. It's page 887 in that black Bible, if you're searching, page 887 or 1054 in the large print. Sinclair has been taking us through a week in the life of the Lord Jesus, and we reach verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. May He bless it to us. Well, let's turn back again to these verses that David has read for us from John 1, verse 43 to the end in uh, verse 51. I'm sure this isn't true at Trinity, um, but I suppose one way of coping with church growth would be to turn off the boiler during the winter. Um, But I'm pretty sure that is not the dark and mysterious plan of the presbyters of Trinity Church here in Aberdeen. But um, if I'm feeling the cold, which I am, and I have the opportunity to do uh, preaching aerobics, um, I imagine sitting you may be very cold, and let me reassure you, Uh, that I will neither be offended and I hope not distracted uh, if you start rubbing yourself um, or anything you need to do to keep warm. And I would promise that the sermon would be shorter because of the cold, um, but I shouldn't do that because when you try to shorten sermons, they just get longer and longer. So we've been looking at this first week in the life of the ministry of the Lord Jesus. 
and it contrasts very much with actually the rest of John's gospel, and perhaps deliberately so. Every little section is brief. Uh, There are very few details given. In a sense, we are left to our imagination, and as soon as chapter 2 starts, right through to the end of chapter 21, John becomes more and more expansive in the way in which he tells these stories about the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And I think perhaps the reason for that is to give us a slow introduction. Uh, The gospel begins um, like an an old drama uh, with John, as it were, himself appearing in front of the curtain in the first 18 verses, uh, setting the scene, um, telling us what the participants in the drama will not really understand until they come to the very end of the drama. And then, as we've seen in these last few weeks, he's taken us through this first week in the public ministry of the Lord Jesus. And we've come to what, by our reckoning, is day five. There will then, into chapter two, be the course of day five, day six, and then the third day that John refers to in chapter 2 and verse 1. And one of the things we noticed last time, and it's present here again in this section, is that this narrative of people being brought to the beginnings of discipleship to the Lord Jesus is actually punctuated in a rather subtle way by the verbs that in the rest of the New Testament characterize or signal discipleship. So, we've got verbs like seeking and coming and seeing and finding and staying or abiding. And as one reads through this gospel and the other gospels, which I think John probably assumes, it it becomes clearer and clearer what was actually going on in this first week, that Jesus was in the beginning of building this little community, this fellowship of disciples whom he would soon uh, set apart as apostles, and then by the end of the gospel, uh, fill them with the Holy Spirit and send them out as missionaries and emissaries into the world. And what becomes, I think, fairly clear in the midst of this is that although there is this common thread, this this repetition of language that relates to each of these individuals who are brought to faith in Jesus Christ, there is actually uh, subtly indicated, but really indicated, very interesting distinctions and differences between them. And in a sense, we couldn't find a greater contrast than we find between Simon Peter, uh, with whom the last section ended, and the man with whom this section begins. And we're going to look at two new disciples of Jesus, this man Philip, and then the man he goes to find in verse 45, whose name is Nathaniel, and probably is the same individual as who appears in the other Gospels as Bartholomew. Uh, Bartholomew, he was son of a man by the name of Ptolemy, 
and uh, presumably Nathaniel is what we would regard as his given name, his Christian name. And the two very contrasting figures. I think we could put it this way, that Philip is the disciple that Jesus needed to find. And Nathaniel is the disciple that Jesus took by total surprise. The disciple Jesus had to find and the disciple Jesus took by total surprise. Verse 43, Jesus has resolved to go to Galilee, and part of the reason for that will become clear at the beginning of chapter 2 when he goes to a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And we are told out of the blue that he himself finds Philip. I think perhaps the next verse explains a little of this. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So whereas in the previous verse it looks as though Philip is somewhere out there in left field, uh, this is an indication to us that he is one of this group probably of friends, perhaps even of colleagues in the fishing industry on Galilee, who have made their way with a spiritual concern and this remarkable spiritual awakening that has taken place, and they found themselves together at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan and become disciples of John the Baptist. But there's this difference between uh, John, who seems to appear anonymously earlier on in this section, and Andrew, and Simon Peter, who all, we might say, find Christ, urged on by John the Baptist. What marks Philip out is that the Lord Jesus has to go and actually look for him. Jesus found Philip. He searched for him. And this, I think, gives us just a little insight into one of the differences between Peter and Philip. Peter, gregarious, confident, sometimes in your face, going to speak to Jesus. And Philip, if I can put it in congregational terms, being the kind of person who can come to the church for 18 months and never speak to the minister. Not because he's unfriendly, but because he's reticent, uncertain, a little unsure. And in actual fact, all that we learn in John's gospel about Philip rather underlines that. So, for example, later on, um, when Jesus is planning to feed the multitude, um, he, he says to Philip, testing him, very interesting, not telling him why he's asking the question, just testing him. There's this huge crowd of people, Philip, how are we going to feed them? And Philip has no idea. He is bewildered. He, he, he doesn't really know what to say except, as he says instinctively, you know, we could put in a year's wages here and we wouldn't have enough to feed these people. He's so flustered by the question that 
he doesn't see as probably Simon Peter would see that the answer was standing straight in front of him. And um, it's interesting when you turn over to that section to see how the narrative continues with Philip and Andrew, his friend, and how it is that eventually Andrew brings the little boy to the Lord Jesus. And fascinatingly, the same thing happens later on in chapter 12. There's a group of Gentiles, Greeks, who come to him and say to him, we want to see Jesus. If, if they had come to Peter, Peter would have taken them directly to Jesus. But Philip apparently doesn't really know what to do. And he goes to Andrew. And Andrew brings them to Jesus. And even later on in the upper room on the night of Jesus' passion, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, um, you can see Philip is still trying to make sense of it all, not quick thinking, not getting to the point. And he says to Jesus, well, Jesus, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. And, and Jesus says to him firmly, but I'm sure graciously, Philip, how long have I been with you? Don't you understand yet? Actually, when I read about Philip in John's Gospel, which is the only place really that we do read about Philip, immediately into my mind's eye comes somebody I knew as a student, who now, by God's grace, is a fine minister. But when he sat in front of me, I could see, and I don't think it was total lack of clarity on my part, although I admit that was a possibility. It's these, just don't seem to be able to put all of this together. And to me, it's very interesting that when you read in the other Gospels the list of the apostles, Philip comes consistently in the same place. He's number five. Now, if you were brought up in Glasgow to be a supporter of Glasgow Rangers in the 1950, you knew that was the number on the back of the great George Young, probably earned about 20 pounds a week. And that was a very significant figure, the center half for Glasgow Rangers. No greater center half in the cosmos than the center half for Glasgow Rangers in those days. But number five, but that's where most of us are, isn't it? So if I ask you, so how do you position yourself? Well, you know, un unless there is something kind of really gone strange with your sense of self, you don't actually put yourself at the bottom of the heap because you understand that God has given you gifts. But by the same token, you don't say, well, I'm a number nine, or I'm probably a number ten, unless you're actually spiritually sick. And I think this is the wonderful thing about the way in which the Lord Jesus calls Philip to be his disciple. He actually has to go and get Philip 
himself. He's kind of tangential. It's not that he's a total outsider, but he's not one of those who will be leading the charge. And in fact, in terms of the the Bible's narrative about Philip, he just disappears somewhere into the midst of history. And yet, as you read on through John's gospel, and John's gospel, perhaps even more than the other gospels, is a gospel that you need to read forwards and then read backwards. I don't know if you find this when you've gone through a series of studies in a particular book. I know preachers often feel this. When you come to the end, you think, I think we're ready to begin studying this book now. Because when we see the end, then we're able to see what the significance of the beginning was. And that's the story of Philip. Philip who appears here as number five in the list of the disciples. And such a marvelous illustration to us of the principle that Paul would enunciate later on about the whole church in 1 Corinthians 12. That when Christ now operates in the church by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus, there is one Spirit operating in all, but there is a diversity, a multiplicity of the ways in which He operates. We're not all mouths. We're not all ears. We're not all eyes. We're not all tongues. Most of us are somewhere in the range of number five. And when we've got to the end of the gospel, what we discover about number five is this, that it wasn't just that Jesus looked for him then. It was that Jesus knew this man had been given to him by his father. And this was one of the men of whom John would say at the beginning of chapter 13, that having loved his own who had been given to him by his father, he loved him right to the very end. I think this is a great truth for us to learn as Christians especially if we're actually number sevens or number eights, that we have no less been found by Christ than the number ones or the number tens, that we're no less the Father's gift to the Son, and that we are equally loved, that He loved us from the first of time, and that He'll keep on loving us right to the very end. And the beautiful thing about this is that for all these elements that seem to emerge in the story of his life, insofar as we have these few details about him, he gives this beautiful, clear testimony to the Lord Jesus when he speaks to presumably his friend Nathaniel and says, we have actually found the Messiah the one Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. When you think about it, it's really, isn't it really interesting that when you think about all the different things that have been said about Jesus, this is not only the simplest thing that's been said about him. In a way, this is the fullest thing that's been said about him. 
He's saying to his friend Nathaniel, Nathaniel, this is the one about our whole, about whom our whole Hebrew Bible spoke. All those verses, all those chapters that we were forced to memorize in synagogue school when for these men the only education was almost certainly the memorization of the text of a Bible, a copy of which none of them possessed, in order that they might possess it in their memory and in their hearts. What an amazing statement this was, that the one who had found Philip was the one Philip had found to be the promised Messiah. And he identifies him in a way he hasn't yet been identified in John's gospel. Philip, believe it or not, he is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one of whom Moses and the prophets all spoke. It's almost as though Luke 24 has kind of gone into reverse gear and landed in John chapter 1, isn't it? Jesus speaks to the disciples on the Emmaus Road and points them to the ways in which the law and the prophets have pointed forwards towards him. And it's interesting, perhaps, that it's this number five disciple, this marginal individual in this group of friends, who is the first person to see that really clearly. So Philip, we might say, is the disciple that Jesus had to go and find. And in sharp contrast, Nathaniel is the disciple that Jesus took by surprise. So his friend, presumably they are friends, presumably Nathaniel, whom we discover later on actually came from Cana, um, opening verses of John chapter 21, for some reason or another, um, kind of, why is he saying this? John says, incidentally, Nathaniel you met at the, in the first chapter of the gospel came from Cana, which was where Jesus was actually going in Galilee in order to be at a wedding, and who somehow or another had also been part of this group of people from Galilee who had come over there to the other side of the Jordan to Bethany to be participants in this awakening that was taking place under the baptism and ministry of John the Baptist. And his pathway to discipleship is very much more complicated. And you'll see it comes in a series of stages. In fact, Nathaniel is the person who's called to discipleship in this first week of Jesus' public ministry, proves to be the most complicated of all and described in the greatest detail. Partly, I suppose, because he gives this immediate instinctive reaction to what Philip says in verse 45. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel came from maybe about seven miles north of Nazareth, from a town of perhaps a thousand 
inhabitants, Nazareth at the time, uh, the archaeologists reckon was perhaps a town of a couple of hundred inhabitants. Suddenly remember during the week an experience I had when I was a first-year student here in Aberdeen and found myself after dinner often in the residence I was in, and actually there was only one residence in Aberdeen University at the time, and only, I think, 3,000 students. Um, and I found myself often sitting between a fellow from Plymouth, if I remember, who'd gone to an English public school, um, and strange to me for a 19-year-old, smoked a pipe, uh, which I thought was kind of affected. And on the other side, there was a boy from Bucky. And the boy from Bucky uh, spoke in the old-fashioned Bucky way. And he couldn't understand what the guy from Plymouth was saying. And the guy from Plymouth had no earthly idea what the man from Bucky was saying. And I just had this sense that, of course, irritated me deeply. That what mystified the young man from Plymouth was this question. Can any good thing come out of Bucky? <laughs> A kind of natural, the natural instinctive reaction that many of us have when we regard where we're from and therefore what identifies us as so superior to someone else. A very natural reaction but at the same time, again, when we take this in the context of the whole Gospel of John, we discover that this kind of question keeps on recurring. So it's not incidental that John has recorded it. There are going to be another seven, eight, maybe even nine times when the question of where Jesus is from and who he is and how can he possibly be the promised Messiah? It's going to be asked again and again and again. It goes right through towards the end of the gospel and to Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate. Where are you from? Who are you really? And it's the, it's the artist in John again, isn't it? Just poking his head out of the narrative and pressing something into the reader. Are you getting it? Are, are you with Nathaniel here, or have you taken in what these disciples have already said about who Jesus really is? It's, it's one of those places that you could read on and it never cross your mind, or by the Spirit you could find yourself being constrained to think more about this question. How is it that this one of lowly birth can possibly be everything that has been said about him in these few verses at the beginning of John's gospel. And so from one point of view, there's great significance in Nathaniel saying, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Uh, it's, a, it's a form of the question that would be raised all the way through the opening couple of centuries of the Christian church. Is it possible that this one from Nazareth, this Galilean that was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem, really is the Savior of the world? 
There's a scandal attached to the gospel. And that's what Nathaniel is actually even instinctively beginning to recognize. How, how can I put these two things together? He's Jesus from no town. And you are saying he is the one of whom the law and the prophets spoke. What kind of Messiah is he? And of course, the rest of the gospel is going to explain to us he's exactly the kind of Messiah that we actually need. And although there may be just a little touch of natural cynicism in Nathaniel's response, um, he's willing to take the chance. And so he goes, as Philip says, come and see, and he goes and sees. And then we find this second stage when he's not in conversation with Philip, but he's in conversation with the Lord Jesus himself. And it's here that the Lord Jesus takes him totally by surprise. And it comes in a series of stages, doesn't it? The first stage is verse 47. He wanders up to Jesus, and Jesus' first words to him are, hmm, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Now, I think it's pretty obvious if you know your Old Testament at all well, there's a very clear allusion here in what Jesus is saying to the story of Jacob. Jacob the deceiver, Jacob the man who was characterized by guile most of the way through his life, made so many mistakes, who having wrestled with the angel of God at Peniel, is given this new name of Israel, indicating that something radically transforming had happened to his life, that the, the old deceitfulness, the old guile somehow or another had been broken in him. So, Nathaniel, you're an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, if that had been you, I think you would be standing there asking the question, what's he saying to me? What's he really saying to me? There seem to be layers in that. Is he complimenting me? And then this question strikes him. How does he know? And of course, he asks it. He says in response to Jesus, how do you know me? And I think from Jesus' reply, you'll notice Jesus' reply mentions Philip. I think that's an indication that at least in Nathaniel's mind is the thought, the answer to this question is, Philip's told you about me. That's how you know about me. Philip must have said something to me, about, to you, about me. And it's at this point that Jesus touches even deeper on his conscience. The first statement, I think, would have touched his conscience. It's, it is kind of uncomfortable when somebody that you have never met before, you've no reason to believe that he or she knows you in any way, that they may have been hearing things about you. You know, unless you have a completely pure conscience, one of your concerns is going to be, I hope they've been hearing about the decent elements in my life. What have you been hearing about me? Did Philip tell you? 
And Jesus says, no, that's not the explanation. And then he says this very mysterious thing. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, this is one of the verses in John's gospel for which you can be awarded a PhD in theology at any university in the world for knowing the answer to this question. What is this about? And nobody knows the answer, except in my own view, the the answer must be significant enough for it to elicit from Nathaniel this response of complete astonishment in verse 49. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. In other words, the answer gives us, I think, a hint that there is more in this statement of Jesus than when you were under the fig tree yesterday, I saw you. I mean, why would that make this man say, you, you must be the Son of God. You, you are the, exactly the one I've been told you are. I think maybe the answer lies partly in Jesus' use of the word saw. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I say that for this reason, that in the Old Testament, there are three words used for the prophet. Two of them mean to see. And if you watch your way through the Old Testament from, I think, about the first Samuel right through to some of the minor prophets, you would notice that again and again and again, these prophets who in a unique way, have access to the secrets of the Lord. So Amos says, the Lord does nothing without revealing His secrets to His servants, the prophets. I think it may be that when Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree, He's not speaking about seeing Him with the immediacy of physical sight but knowing something about him that he could not possibly have known unless he had access to supernatural information, supernaturally given information. And I think it's this that opens up Nathaniel. It may even be, and I personally think this at least there's a likely interpretation that when Nathaniel was under the fig tree, whenever he was under the fig tree, he was absolutely certain nobody was seeing what he was doing under the fig tree. And Jesus is saying, when you were under the fig tree, absolutely certain nobody was looking, nobody knew, I knew, I saw you. And it's this that breaks into Nathaniel's heart to teach him that, and this is the interesting thing, that this one, as we know, because John has come out in front of the curtain at the beginning of the gospel and told us the one you are about to read about is none other than the Word of God. Verse 50. 
And as Hebrews says, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cleaves through bone, marrow. It, it sees the secrets of the heart. But what Nathaniel realizes is, whatever it was he was doing under the fig tree, the Lord Jesus knew. And he must therefore know him thoroughly with a knowledge that only the living God could have given to him. And what's so interesting about this is, as is true in everything we read about Jesus in the Gospels, is that he is the same today, as Hebrews says, as he was in this yesterday. And you may have experienced this as his word has been expounded, the ministers of Satney, I'm sure, though they've never told me, I'm sure they must have experienced this. Someone reluctantly shaking hands with them at the door and saying, has somebody been speaking to you about me? When they don't know what you're talking about. It is that the Christ who saw into the heart of Nathaniel sees into our hearts, and as the Word of the living God, which He gives to us in the Scriptures, comes to us, it, it reaches us in places not only no one else can reach, no counselor on earth can reach, reaches us in places we ourselves scarcely, if at all, knew were hidden down in the recesses of our hearts. And sometimes on the one hand, that will be to expose our sin and our failure in order to draw us closer to Christ. And on the other hand, it will be to reach into the deepest places of pain and sorrow and loneliness and sense of misunderstanding in such a way that we realize for the first time, He knows me, He understands me, He loves me, He cares about me and he will be with me. I know a forgotten uh, Saturday night in another church I served. I was on my own in the house, actually. Um, if you'll excuse the details, I just had a bath, and I was in my dressing gown, and the doorbell rang at nine o'clock at night. Now, I mean, I'll not ask for a show of hands. How many of you turned up at your minister's door at nine o'clock on a Saturday night? I opened the door, and the person standing on the other side of the door said, give it to me. Now, those are words that can be <laughs> variously translated to you. You know, you make a fist and give it to him. And, I mean, I was shocked. And I said, well, if you tell me what it is, I might be able to give it to you. He said, I know you've got it. I said, well, so that I know whether I've got it or not, will you tell me what it is? He said, my diary. I know you've got my diary. Friends, I didn't even know he had a diary. <laughs> I knew him quite well. I had no idea what was going on. I said to him, you better come in. And eventually I managed to send him away with the reassurance. I didn't have his diary. 
of what had been happening. He'd been sitting there listening to my completely innocent and number five average preaching of the Word of God. And it had so found, disclosed the secrets of his heart to him that he became absolutely convinced the only way this could possibly have happened was if I was in possession of his diary. And if that can happen today through Christ preaching his word to us, then I can think we can understand why it is that Nathaniel's response to the Lord Jesus is this tremendous statement of faith. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus says, Nathaniel, if you think that's amazing, you ain't seen nothing yet. And he goes on to speak about the fact. Using, and it's actually interesting here because in verse uh, 51, the, the, the verb changes to a second person plural. So this obviously applies not just to Nathaniel, but to Philip and presumably to others. You are going to experience something even more amazing than this. And he, he then alludes again to the story of Jacob when in his dream at Bethel, is this dream of the ladder or the stairway or the ziggurat. The only time in the Old Testament the word is used, which is why your English Standard Version will probably have a little footnote saying it could mean this or it could mean that. And the angels of God ascending and descending as Jacob realizes that he was in the very presence of God. And God comes and speaks and says, I'm fulfilling my covenant and you're meeting with me. And that's the, that's the illusion Jesus makes about this ladder. The word actually comes from the Hebrew verb that means to raise up. And when we get to reading John's gospel backwards and remember him saying, when you raise me up, then you will know that I am the Son of Man. Or in chapter 12, when I am raised up from the earth, or even in chapter 3, as Moses raised up the bronze serpent in the wilderness for the people to be healed, then when the Son of Man is raised up, those who look to him will live. And he's really giving then a little hint that only eventually John himself will realize that he's saying to them, imagine them going back and getting together with these other disciples that Jesus has called and say to John, do you know what he said? He said that this was nothing in the future. They would see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And only gradually their eyes are opened and they begin to understand that he's speaking about the fact that it's through his death and resurrection, his being raised up, yes, on the cross, but raised up as the Savior of the world that John had spoken to, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, that as they looked to him in that service of salvation, they would see all the covenant promises of God fulfilled in the ministry 
of the Lord Jesus. And so as this section draws to an end, it is absolutely fascinating to see that in these little cameos that John has given to us of the calling of these different disciples who are going to be apostles, there's probably no place in the whole Bible where there is such a concentration of description of the Lord Jesus. He's the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. He's the one who bears the Spirit of God in order that He may bestow the Spirit of God on us to transform our hearts. He is the Messiah, the prophet, the priest, and king who has been promised in the Old Testament Scriptures. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man who will be lifted up and will draw all men to Himself. And He is able to save an Andrew or a John, a Peter or a Philip, or someone like Nathaniel, someone like me, someone like you. He sees into my heart. He knows all about me. He died to wash away my sins. He lives to be my king. He draws me into his fellowship. And he waits for my response tonight and every day into the future. And if it's true that he is all this, then you and I, friends, can trust him to the end. Well, let's pray together.